If you've got a Bible, why don't you grab it and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 38 through 42, we're going to be looking at today. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 817. We're coming to the end of our winter series, and we're going to look at these four verses this morning. Matthew chapter 12, 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what a privilege it is to be able to gather here this morning and to hear from your word and to reflect on it and to learn from it and to allow our hearts to meditate upon it and then to put it into practice. We pray that you would enable all of those things in us today. We come to you through the grace that we receive through your son Jesus. And we ask that you would uh, help us to be focused and alert this morning. We ask that you would uh, allow our hearts and our minds and even our souls to engage with your word today. We pray for Tom as he teaches and we pray for ourselves as, as we listen. And we thank you that these words are from you. Help us to treat them as such. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I came to faith in Christ during the summer after my first year at university. And um, my roommate that first year was a friend from high school who was Jewish. And he had to endure me during that that first year. A lot of things were happening at that time. I took instruction in the Catholic faith uh, to join the Catholic Church. I was attending Bible studies in our dormitory, led by many different uh, Christian groups. I was reading the Bible consecutively for the first time. I even went to a Baptist church. And from my my background, I wasn't sure Baptists could read, but I found out that they could. And uh, so he put up with all of that. Fortunately, we're still friends. He lives in Minnesota, and we talk periodically. But that year, 1972-73, he was taking a computer science course. And this was long before personal computers or anything like that was ever conceived of. You had to make cards of some kind in huge stacks in order to print anything out. And he printed out a banner that he hung up in our dorm room. And I remember it had Snoopy dancing on either end of it. And uh, 
the banner read this, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Now, after nearly 50 years, I can look back and sympathize with what he was experiencing living with me at the time. And fortunately, I had enough sense, I think, to not tell him that I didn't agree with the banner that he had put up. But the truth is, I don't agree with it, and I still don't. In fact, it's nonsensical if you stop to think about it. Um, People might say that. You might hear that sometimes said, but no one is really capable of living by that. Today, our society is ripped apart by so many issues. Some of those issues were around when I was young, but they weren't really issues. Others have always been issues, and some are brand new. Things like abortion and same-sex relationships and capital punishment and fetal tissue research and socialism and all of these things. And if you ask any person about these issues, you'll find that even those who claim to be the most tolerant people are convinced that it really does matter what you believe, and they want you to agree with them. You know, sincerity has no bearing on matters that are really significant issue. The saying, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, is usually used to refer to things like religion, where it's thought that there's all these different ideas and um, it's kind of mysterious and no one can really know whether they're right, right and wrong. And so the view is they're all correct as long as people believe them sincerely. But people who say that, they only believe that until whatever the religion is they're confronted with tells them something about how they ought to think or how they ought to behave. Then all of a sudden, it does matter what you believe. But the whole point of religion, as far as I can tell, is to teach you things that you ought to think and how you ought to live and behave yourself. What's the point if it doesn't? And it's evident that Jesus did not subscribe to this idea. His constant theme is that it does matter what you believe. He he taught that faith or trust is not simply an emotional feeling. Like people sometimes say today, I have faith. And you can't tell what they mean. Do they mean faith that as they've gone through life, they've always seemed seemed to land on their feet and they think they'll do it again? Does it mean that they just think they're a good enough person that whatever happens, they're going to make their way through it? Faith is a word that requires an object. You're trusting in something. You can have faith in a doctor. You can have faith in a lawyer. You can have faith in your spouse. So you can have faith in God. And what you believe, what faith is all about, is only as strong as the object that you're putting your trust in. And that's the point of the passage this morning. Now, we've been spending time in the Gospel of Luke. If you've been around for a few weeks, you've noticed that. But it's not because we're going through the Gospel of Luke. We're actually going through the life of Jesus. And Luke chapter 9 at the end is kind of a turning point where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And the rest of Luke describes his final journey on his way to Jerusalem where he faces the cross. It's also found in the other Gospels. This morning I just took a parallel passage that's found in Luke chapter 11 and want to use that. It's from Matthew. And only because it's a little more full in its presentation of what Jesus said at that point. Is presented in both Gospels, Matthew and Luke, as being an example, one among many that are being presented at this point in the narrative, one of many examples of the kind of opposition that Jesus was facing during the latter half of his ministry. You'll note in Matthew, if you're looking at that, 
that uh, Matthew identifies Jesus' opponents, whereas Luke doesn't. He leaves that open. But Matthew says it was the scribes and the Pharisees. And he reminds us that Jesus' greatest opposition came from the religious leaders because they had the most at stake in whether or not his words were true. And so in this case, they ask him for a sign. There's nothing wrong with asking for a sign, according to Scripture. Moses was given signs. Gideon asked for signs, and God gave them to him. Hezekiah asked for a sign. There's nothing wrong with giving a sign and with asking for a sign by itself. The problem is that these were asking for a sign when they had already received numerous indications that Jesus was exactly who he said that he was. He was the Messiah. And their past conduct in the, con- in the conflict that they'd had with him showed that um, they were looking for a sign in order to accuse him. They were always finding something wrong with his signs. He did it on the Sabbath. Or he violated some rabbinical principle, whether or not it was found in the Old Testament or something like that. In other words, all that had passed on before this point in the gospel story should have convinced the religious leaders that it was more than sufficient evidence of Jesus being the Messiah. The religious leaders at this point in the story should have paid at least very respectful attention to the one who was performing these signs and who was teaching in the way that he was, but they refused. In fact, Jesus responds to them, understanding their refusal, with the words, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Now, these are very important words. You can easily pass over them, but they remind us that there was among the um, people of Jesus' day, the Jewish people, there was a division in their understanding of their history. So let me just give a real brief review of history. The, The people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, who was renamed Israel, that group of people divided into 12 tribes eventually became a nation. And God gave them a specific piece of real estate called Palestine. And they went and they lived there. And uh, they lived in that land, developing into a whole nation under kings and and eventually dividing into two related nations. They lived there for 900 years. And at the end of 900 years, God exiled them from the land. And the reason was they persistently continued to attempt to mix the worship that God had given to them, the way of worshiping him, they attempted to mix that with the pagan religions around them. They tried to turn the pure worship with the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices into a fertility religion. And the whole Old Testament is a testimony to what they continually tried to do. And God would chasten them and they would come back for a brief period of time and eventually they would slide into idolatry again. And so finally God said he he did what he had said he would do from the beginning He cast them out of the land. They were taken captive in about 600 B.C. by the Assyrian Empire, excuse me, the Babylonian Empire, and they they were then dispersed into other countries and into other nations where there was an attempt made to erase their ethnic, religious identity. That's what uh, was done in the ancient world in order to do away with a people group in some way. But after a 70-year exile, as God had told Jeremiah there would be, God allowed them to return back to the land. And some of them came back, not all by any means. Some of them came back. And that's the point where this group of people, 
the nation of Israel, became called the Jews. Judaism really begins after the exile when they came back around 500 B.C. to rebuild the temple, to occupy the land, to reform the nations. And that group of people returned back to the land, you would say chastened, kind of as they had been in their history. They came back without their former, former idolatry. From that point forward, they did not any longer try to mix their pure worship given to them in the law with fertility religions. They began to try to live by the scriptures. But right at that point, there was disagreement as to exactly what had happened because the prophets gave some information about what the return would be like. There was one viewpoint that said when the people returned, they returned back as God's pure people to do exactly what he wanted them to do. That they rebuilt the temple. They built the walls of Jerusalem. They established the nation. They began to live by the law. And the other viewpoint was they had returned back physically and they had been chastened from some of what they had done, but their hearts were not completely given back to God. And Isaiah confirms the second viewpoint. And later prophets like Haggai and Malachi confirmed that when the people came back, they didn't come back really deeply committed to God and seeking to live for him. They were like a child who is sorry that he got caught. And uh, he is determined to be good enough to not get caught again. But they weren't truly sorry in their hearts. And what the prophets said was that only when the Messiah came would their hearts be brought back to God. If you've ever read the very last book of the Old Testament, the last sentence, prophet promised that a prophet like Elijah would arise who would return the hearts of the fathers to the children and return the people to God. And when you open the New Testament, the book of Luke, particularly the first two chapters, you read that people are rejoicing that the Messiah has come, these people who understood about Jesus, his mother and her great song, Simeon, this old man in the temple when he sings the song that is called the Nunc Dimittis, now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word because I have seen the Messiah. These people are rejoicing that God is restoring the hearts of his people. You see, only the Messiah was going to do that. Jesus is evidently in the second group. He was among those who were still looking for the redemption of Israel. And he speaks to these religious leaders and says, you are an evil and adulterous generation. The words drawn from the prophets to describe Israel. You still need cleansing. You need the cleansing of the heart that God promised unto the prophets that he would give. And these leaders had all the information that they needed in order to respond to his words, to his teaching, to his miracles. And the time had come for God to deal with their hearts, but they had all their information and they rejected it. Some people are given the opportunity to have a clear understanding of who God is and what he is like. And this morning, what I'd like to do is leave aside the very important question that we all ask What about all those people who have never heard the gospel? That's an important question, but it shouldn't allow us to to keep us from looking at the question that Jesus wants to confront us with today. What about those who hear a clear disclosure of the message and then they reject it? What if despite the clarity of what they have understood, they choose not to accept his message and to follow him? You know, everyone in this room has received some 
understanding of who God is. It probably varies for any one of us. We could place ourselves on some kind of graph at, at different points of how much understanding we have of who God is, who Jesus is, what the gospel is, that kind of thing. Some of us, uh, like myself, grew up in churches perhaps where we didn't really understand anything about the gospel. I I hate to say that, but it's the truth. I grew up in what would be called a liberal Protestant church where the gospel was thought to be the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. That's what I was taught as a child. That's all there is to it. It's about God being everyone's father, and human beings ought to love each other regardless of other people's life's choices. And, and when I look back, I, I think of my childhood years and the church that I attended and the few things that I heard. It was like sitting down to a magnificent meal, a feast in which all kinds of food was going to be given. And, and the waiter came by to my plate, and he put on it a few slivered almonds. Slivered almonds were meant to be a garnish that was put on the string beans. They were meant to be a side dish to the potatoes and the meat and all the other things of the feast. And all I got was a few slivered almonds. Slivered almonds are by themselves nutritious, but not a few of them. And they certainly don't satisfy. I got something, but what I got was barely even the truth. And it wasn't even complete. Some of you, and I grew up in a church probably, I think my wife was like this, where you were exposed to more of the meal. Whatever that means, whatever pastors you listened to or churches you went to or what your parents taught you in, the, in your home. But the meal that you were exposed to is kind of like one of those French restaurants that you might go to. I hate to pick on fresh French restaurants, but I've been to a few, and this is my impression. Beautiful presentation. But there's not much there. (laughs) You know, what you got may have been beautifully presented and ornate in its performance, but it was neither satisfying nor nutritious. You got more than a few slivered almonds. And what you got might have been real food, but it left you feeling unsatisfied, still wanting more to eat. But you got something. And some of you, I'm sure, grew up in a third category. That is, your parents... Your family exposed you to the whole feast. You you might have grown up in a setting in which uh, the full meal was there. You were taught who Jesus is and what he did and why he did it for sinners. And, And you were shown, not perfectly, of course, but adequately what people are like in Sunday school teachers and pastors and and your parents, people who love Jesus and are seeking to live by that truth. And it's like there's three categories, broad categories you can fall into at least in America, it seems. But you have to understand, we don't stay in those categories. As we move through life, we, we gather other things. We learn other things. So for myself, I may have grown up in the first category with a few, few slivered almonds, but when I was in high school, I began to date a girl who is now my wife, and she grew up in a Roman Catholic home. And for three years, I went to the Roman Catholic church with her, although I never joined. By the time I went to college, I'd have to say, I, I'd had a, a taste of more of the meal. I understood more about who Jesus was, though it, it, wasn't, it wasn't enough for me. I still felt hungry, but I had some friends who were Christians in high school. I remember a teacher who was very influential, who led a Bible study once a week during the lunch period. I remember reading a book, 
I mean, few of us stay where we start out. As we go through life, we're exposed to different things, particularly in America, and we learn more things about who Jesus is. The ones to whom Jesus is speaking in this passage, the scribes and the Pharisees, are definitely in the second or probably the third category. There were people who had been exposed to a lot more information. They knew the scriptures that had been given by God. They had engaged in at least the formality of the kind of worship that God himself had established. In other words, they had enough of the meal to know that there is a full feast, that it comes from God, and by Jesus' own works, they should have known that he was the main course. And most of you are in the second or third category, I would think, at some point in life at this point. So that's the ones he's speaking to here. And Jesus says to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Verse 39. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They keep asking of a sign, so he says, okay, I'll give you one, but this is not a sign I'm going to perform right now. This is a sign that you're going to have to look back on and see because it's the one that's coming. And he refers to his death and resurrection, obviously. He draws like a parallel between, uh, on the one hand, Jonah, the prophet, on the other hand, who he is and what he's doing and what will happen to him, and that is called typology talked about it before. Typology is a way of understanding the Bible that was very, uh, is the way the Bible itself was written, in which some event or circumstance in the Old Testament is presented as being a pattern for which an event, a circumstance, or a person in the New Testament becomes the reality, the fulfillment of it. A pattern and the reality, it's kind of like when I was growing up, my father owned a business that he started after World War II, and and uh, when I was a little child, we had a neighbor who lived across the street, and, and he owned an advertising company, and he always did my father's advertising. And this man was very artistic. He uh, carved out of wood a little dog. Uh, it, it was a Springer Spaniel, because my family always owned Springer Spaniels. And it was a Springer Spaniel that looked as though it had been running, and it suddenly sat back on its haunches and was going like this. And it was called Stopper had a little tag that said stop around. What he did is he took that wood and he made out of it a rubber cast, a rubber mold. And uh, you could pour plaster or something like that into the mold and let it set, and what you would get is a little dog. And my father had people who would paint these dogs, and they would, when it was still uh, curing, they would stick on the bottom a little plastic piece that had the name of my father's company, that kind of thing, and they'd give it out as a paperweight. That's what typology is like. It's the Old Testament is the type, the pattern, the mold. The New Testament is the reality. It's what you want in the end. This is called the anti-type, according to the New Testament. And um, it's a pattern, and Jesus does it exactly here. Jonah was a short little book in the Old Testament, only four chapters, but it was very important among the Jewish people in the time between when they returned from the exile to the time when Jesus came, it's called Second Temple Judaism. During that time, they read Jonah, they took a lot of teaching from it, so Jesus uses him as this chief example, and you can put up this little chart that 
that I made. What he says, he draws all these correspondences, Jesus does in his brief words, between Jonah and himself, and then he draws one contrast. So, for example, both Jonah and Jesus were appointed to preach repentance to sinful people, though we'd have to say Jonah was preaching temporal repentance. That is, God said that he was going to destroy them physically in judgment because of their wickedness unless they repented. Jesus was preaching uh, repentance from eternal judgment. Both of them faced death. For Jonah, we know afterward it was only apparent death, while Jesus' was actual death, but they both both faced death. Both were three days and three nights in confinement within something else. For Jonah, it was a great fish. For Jesus, it was in the heart of the earth. And this is a point that people kind of struggle with, the three days and three nights, because as you read the Gospels, you find out that Jesus wasn't literally 72 hours in the grave. He was only in for a part of Friday, all of Saturday, and part of Sunday. It's interesting that in the parallel of Luke, it doesn't use this phrase, three days and three nights, and there's probably a reason for that. In in Luke, the audience apparently, you can gather from reading the gospel, were Gentile readers, non-Jews. Jewish customs have to be explained a lot of times in the gospel of Luke, whereas in Matthew, it appears that the readers originally, it was designed for an audience who were primarily Jewish people. And Gentiles would have been confused by the three days and three nights because they would take it, as we do today, as literally 72 hours, whereas uh, the Jews would know that that is a Semitism. That is, uh, in the Jewish language, it's just an idiom, a figure of speech. A day-night referred to a day or any part of the day. It's used that way in the book of Esther and in another place in the Old Testament. So it has a, a background to it, but all it meant is that one day, night was any part of the day. So if Jesus were a part of one day and then a whole of a one day and a part of another day, it was considered three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then we'd have to, coming back to the, to the, the comparison, both were delivered from death. Jonah was delivered from apparent death in the belly of the whale. Jesus was delivered from actual death. Both, we have to note, were obedient in taking their message to those to whom they were called to take it. But the last one is the point that Jesus wants to make. There's a contrast between Jonah and Jesus. This is what he makes his whole point from. When Jonah preached, and he preached to Gentiles, non-Jews, he's the only prophet of the Old Testament, to be sent to a Gentile nation to preach repentance. When he preached, his hearers accepted his message. They responded to him. They repented, and God relented from his judgment. When Jesus preaches, those who hear him and those who ought to be most ripe to accept his message are rejecting it. So he draws a conclusion. It's really a double conclusion. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, now what's his point? Well, the Ninevites, in the end, responded, and Jesus' hearers aren't. And at the final judgment, the image is given that the Ninevites themselves condemned 
what is being done to Jesus. The Queen of Sheba, which he seems to draw out of thin air, she hasn't been referred to, but she's this queen from presumably someplace like Ethiopia today who made the journey all the way to Jerusalem under the greatest of the Old Testament king, Solomon, to hear if he really was everything that people said. And when he was done showing her and teaching her, she admitted he's the greatest king who has ever lived. But when the king appeared to the leaders, they rejected him. Let me explain the significance of these sayings, because they come to us kind of like, wow, where's he coming up from there? I want you to know, each of them ends with this, with these words, but something greater than, something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon. And that's where the point lies. That's not a phrase used elsewhere in the Bible. He didn't draw it from the Old Testament, although he drew, obviously, the the story from the Old Testament he was taking it from. But in order to see its significance, let, let me take you back to earlier in the chapter. If you look in chapter 12 at the beginning, there's a controversy, an earlier controversy Jesus has with the religious leaders. They're upset with him because his disciples, as they're walking along, are taking grain and, and they're rubbing it in their hands and blowing off the chaff and eating the grain because they're hungry. And and the leaders are upset with them because they haven't washed their hands with a ritual washing that they felt was important. Now, ritual washing of hands before eating is not taught in the Old Testament as something that everyone must do every time they eat. It was something that the priests were to do before they served in the temple. But they had made that into a principle that everyone needed to wash their hands in this ritual washing before they ate. And so they were upset with them. And what Jesus does is he, he points out Don't you know that in the law, not just in rabbinical rules, but in the law, God commanded that the priests do things on the Sabbath that technically violate the law. They were allowed to do certain things that were considered work because it was a part of temple worship. And then he says, and this is what I want to note, verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That's the third time he says. It's really the first time. Something greater than the temple. Then in the passage we're looking at, something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon. Now, what does he mean by all these things? Um, These were the three greatest institutions in the Old Testament, the priests, the prophets, and the kings. The priests served in the temple. The prophets were calling the people to live by the law. They were the teachers and calling to covenant obedience. The kings ruled over the nation. They were the three classes of leaders in the Old Testament that required anointing in order to be installed in office, like a symbolic anointing with olive oil that was poured over them, and it was a picture of the endowment with the Holy Spirit so that they could fulfill their ministry. And what Jesus is saying in uh, these three passages is that he's the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament looked for, everything that these people longed for. He's the embodiment of all their institutions, all their longings, that the priests really were like a rubber mold. And he was the ornate piece of art that came out of it. The prophets were the same. They were just a pattern. Important as they were, he was the fulfillment. The kings who varied in their obedience to God, they were the pattern. He was the fulfillment. The New Testament, in fact, presents Jesus as the 
prophet, priest, and king of his people. He fulfills everything the Old Testament pointed towards. As the priest, he offers a perfect sacrifice that actually takes away the sins of those for whom it is offered. As a prophet, the prophet like Moses, who Moses himself promised would come in Deuteronomy chapter 19, he's the true teacher of the people of God who calls us to live by his covenant. His teaching expresses all of the authority that went before him in final and complete authority. As king, he rules over the people of God, not imperfectly like the Old Testament kings, but both perfectly and forever. That's the significance of these words, greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. They tell us how great was the testimony that these people received who heard him in the flesh who should have known and seen these things as, he, as they read the scriptures and were looking for God to act. The whole point is that those who receive a greater revelation will receive a stricter judgment if they reject it. This doesn't answer the question about those who never receive a revelation from God, an understanding of who God is or Jesus. That's answered elsewhere in the Bible. It's not the subject here. But this speaks to us today because we have received some measure of understanding of who he is, even if it was only a few slivered almonds. It was at least a part of the whole meal. So how much have you been given about the message of Jesus? What did you learn in childhood? What did your parents tell you as you were growing up? Did you ever have to learn a catechism and recite it and talk about it? Were there books that you read? Have you known friends in life who have tried to steer you towards Christ, explain things to you about Jesus? The whole point of this is don't reject what you know. Respond to what you know. Even if it was only a few slivered almonds, look for the whole meal that that represented. The basic idea is that those who receive a fuller understanding of the gospel, like these people did, and then they reject it, are going to face a more severe judgment. I mean, think about it. For Jesus' own generation, they were in a vastly different place than those who Jonah listened to. Jonah preached to Gentiles, and they accepted his message. Jesus was preaching to the very people who had the full meal presented to them and knew that it was coming. But when it came, they rejected it. For Jesus' own generation, the queen of Sheba, who was a Gentile, who came to acknowledge that God had raised a king in Israel who was the greatest of all kings of her day. But those who listened to Jesus, who heard him, who had the scriptures, who had some understanding of these things, they rejected it. What about you? Don't reject what you know. You know about 25 to 30 years ago, there was a young family who came to our church. A young man and his wife, they had two children, if I remember correctly. And I remember they came for two or three months, and they were so attentive and so hungry. And we got to know them a little bit. And and at the end of two or three months, I remember he kind of pulled me aside out in the lobby, and he told me they weren't going to be coming back. And I asked him why. He said, well, a couple of years before that, they had started a little video rental business. Ask your parents at home if you don't know what that is. And, you know, they started a little video rental business and uh, to supplement their income. And it turns out in this little storefront that they had somewhere around here, 
the videos that they rented out the most that they actually were making supplemental income from were all X-rated. And what he said is, if they trusted Christ, they knew they'd have to give up that business. And it was just too valuable. I never saw them again. I think about them sometimes. I don't know whether they still reject the gospel. I don't have any idea. But renting out videos soon went the way of the eight-track tape and the tape recorder, you know. And I wonder, what will that man think when he stands before God? Was a few dollars for a short period of time worth it? Don't reject what you know. But I want you to think finally about these words Jesus said to his opponents. Greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. Rather than thinking them as they kind of come through to us, rather than thinking of them as harsh and kind of cruel, you need to think of them as like seeds that he was planting inside of them. He was telling them something that only on reflection would they be able to think about as they thought about the scriptures and they thought about him. And maybe after his death and resurrection, they would come to understand it. We don't know what happened to them, but we do know that the book of Acts tells us that in the early years of the church, a great many of the priests, meaning the Jewish priesthood, became obedient to the faith. Weren't these like words, these words like seeds that were planted inside of them that were capable of germinating and beginning to grow up and bearing fruit in their lives. And isn't it the same for us? Everything you experience that is any understanding of who Jesus is and what he is like is God giving you something more, giving you a seed that he puts inside of you. Let it germinate in your mind and grow up in faith. It does matter what you believe. It does matter. Sincerity makes no difference. And Jesus calls us to respond to the information that he gives us. Let's pray. Again, our gracious God and Father, we thank you that you've given to us this word. We know that it's hard to understand at times. We, we are in a place so far distant from who Jesus is and what he did. And yet, you have given to us the very words of the eyewitnesses. That's who these people were. Matthew was an eyewitness of these things. He wrote down what he experienced, what he heard from Jesus, what he saw in Jesus' conflict and controversy with the Pharisees. We pray that you might use it just as you did in his life, because that's its purpose. You might take it by its spirit. You might invade our hearts and minds. You might give to us that full faith that is faith in Christ and Christ alone that faith that brings the full assurance of faith, the knowledge of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.